Thwip, thwip, Clarice. Thwip, thwip. <laughs> In honor of Spider-Man No Way Home, the more fun stuff version, what movie needs a re-release with 11 minutes of more fun stuff? I don't know why I didn't think you saying thwip would be so funny, but it really was. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I'm sure there are no extra uh, special effects from everything everywhere all at once because that movie was made on a budget, but like, what if there was? That'd be good. I'm at Patches, and I'm going to go with the zany comedy rat race because I feel like they could just have other zany incidents on during their rat race. I thought about rat race. That Should we do a rat race episode? No. Rat race rewatch <laughs> during the height of Oscar season. Let's go. I saw... I saw John Lovitz accidentally I remember enjoying it. I remember loving when Don Lovett, when John Lovitz got his Hitler mustache. Great Ava Braun jokes. But uh, should we do a rat race episode? Is <laughs> is just a cursed sentence. This is what happens when they start releasing movies in August, David. It's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm David the Seven, and I'm gonna go with Goyana Scotsy, the more fun stuff version. Oh boy, uh, I am David Ehrlich, and I, man, what movie and do I want to have And let's do a rat race scenes? podcast. Yes. Let's do a rat race podcast. If you podcast. can't come up Fuck with an it. answer, we will do a rat oh, race podcast. Oh God, the, the pressure is on. Um, I, I guess I will say, uh, I don't know, I feel like I've been talking about it a lot recently for good reason, but I'm still in an eyes wide shut frame of mind because <laughs> who knows what else... Uh, I mean, this is sort of an ahistorical comment, but don't think about it too hard. Who knows what else Kubrick might have put in there in the months between when he died and then when he came out. <laughs> Did you do that for Blank Check or are you just watching Eyes Wide Shut because of your list? Or both? Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 405. It's pandemic 128. It is the week of Wednesday, August 31st. That's the day that in 1966, the Battle of Algiers, directed by Gio Pontecovo, premiered yeah. at you see Vienna International Film Festival? Is it not Venice? Is it Vienna? I mean, uh, take it up with onthisday.com, which provides me with all my probably <laughs> accurate historical facts. It, it is almost time for the Venice Film Festival, as um, David or like not going to Venice could still tell you because he's preparing for the Venice Film Festival, as am I, as am I in my own way. Uh, the film won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film yeah, Festival. Yeah, I love the there Vienna International Film Festival. No offense On this to day. the Vienna com, Film Festival. You, you fix your shit. It Vienna did. might have a film festival. I mean, I'm sure Vienna has a film festival. I don't think it's one that, uh, you know, where, where film of the statue would necessarily premiere. <laughs> it did play also at the Acapulco Film Festival. Ooh. Um, yeah. So I'll go, I'll that go to the Acapulco. Market. Who's going to take me to the Acapulco Film Festival? The Hollywood Critic will. Association will fly you there. Ooh. Oh, yeah. On a one-way Scott, flight. Katie, Let's buy a Katie, table. Katie <laughs> Movie <laughs> Rich. Katie Movie Rich. I'm in a... Uh, I'm in a battle with Katie Movie Man Hasty. 
who's a real person. Sorry, <laughs> oh Katie Hasey, not to defame you. Uh, I, love, I, I can't get over the detail. What of a string of inside story. jokes that no one listening understands. We, a, we are talking about a, a Hollywood Reporter article <laughs> written by Scott Feinberg <laughs> about the Hollywood Critics Association Scott, that everyone should read me, if they have yet. Scott Movie Feinberg. <laughs> <laughs> He's been anointed with the title as well. Interesting. Uh, someone said that the, uh, the two Scots was like a detail from a Charlie Kaufman movie, which I haven't really been able to get over. It's incredible. Anyway, is this what we talk about because we don't have new reviews? Maybe. Do we have new reviews? Not on the iTunes, but we do have this that was sent to fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. I'm going to pronounce this name Roar because it's spelled R-O-A-R, but here we go. Hi, I'm Roar, and I come from Ford with this... uh, which is in a part of Norway depicted in the movie The Troll Hunter. I could not with my inability to use tech and being an Android user, uh, so you are getting this instead of traditional review. All right, I think it's an English second language thing. Forgive me as I I parse this out. Needless to say, truly deserving of five stars. I understand that perfectly. We'll write again if I figure (laughs) it out. You are all great, especially Patches, who works as a great moderator in this war room, and Ehrlich, whose reviews make me smile. Recently, I looked up when, as a citizen of Norway, I could watch, for me, the upcoming movie, 3,000 Years of Longing, and I can't until the 4th of November. I may have to see it at BIF, the Bergen International Film Festival, but nonetheless, I want to take this opportunity to write about a movie I have or force one of my favorite film podcasters to read it out loud. Since you read every review it aloud on pod, here we go. The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a better movie than Temple of Doom because it does oh not have God. the relentless action pacing of the latter film and who amongst us can argue that surviving a nuclear blast in a fridge is any more stupid than jumping out of a plane in a lifeboat also uh the movie pinchcliffe grand prix directed by evo caprino is excellent and maybe the best norwegian movie of all time Mm. anyway as i said you're one of the best keep up the good work I would also go to the uh, Norwegian Film Festival this reviewer was talking about, too. Invite me to that. Katie wants to go to all the films. Vienna, Acapulco. You you pay for my airfare. Uh, What about about your multiple children? Mm, They can come. Everyone wants a small child in a movie theater. The reason I'm not at the Venice Film Festival, where for my job it would make sense for me to be, is... uh, it's difficult to, and, and then I would have to go directly to Toronto. It's, it's really difficult to leave a wife and young child uh, for three weeks. <laughs> um, it's tough. True. It's tough. Yeah, you got to bring stuff. them with uh, you. Did, you. did you ever think about the fact that you'd be flying to Venice, like possibly on the same plane as the DCP copy of the movie that you're flying to Venice to see? Because these movies are all in New York, as we all know. Um, is the, I guess the DC. I mean, I have right? flown to Venice with and to other film festivals with the filmmakers of the films on the plane with me, which I mean, you know, walking through first class and seeing Noah Baumbach you know, take off his shoes and put on his eye mask. Um, <laughs> and as you go to as you go to steerage, they put you in the toilet in the back where I prefer to sit with my kind. <laughs> the critics, um, section, if you will. Yeah, exactly. yeah with, with the hard drives, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I use the, the hard drive as a flotation device. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that is a little strange, but we all have to get there somehow. <laughs> I mean, you could, they could also just, like, show it to you in New York. I don't know. This is me uh, questioning. Well, I'm asking yeah. to fly to all these film festivals, and here I am questioning the entire nature of them. Well, well you I mean, know, this we is a film festival. This is we the international point of our podcast. 
Yeah, I'm just trying to get too inside baseball about it, but a lot of these film festivals will work for certain publications. You know, the the well, the, it's not up to the film festival, but a lot of the publicists and whatnot, sales agencies will show you the movies in advance if you're going to the film festival, which you know you wind up sitting in an empty, you're sitting in a hotel room like three thousand miles away from your home, writing about movies you saw a borough away. Uh, it's a strange. I'm Change I'm business. sensing my first attempt to redirect and listen. This is the international version, <laughs> but um, yeah. American listeners, we have not had a review in the podcast app since August eighth. It wow. August is now. People are over. gonna forget us. And so, wow. like the international people are really picking up uh, the email review slack for you. But there is Galaxy of Heroes <laughs> to talk about. Dave, I think I'm allowed to ask because of the review situation, which is a little bit, you know, <laughs> hanging in the balance here. It's sure. not a Star Wars related, it's Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes related question. It's just sort of adjacent to that. What's the oh, status no. Oh, no. on the uh, Lord of the Rings mobile RPG in the same vein? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, it is still in beta uh, that I understand, but I'm also watching because if anybody knows about these gotcha games from Capital Games... Uh, being a day one player means you get a little jump on everybody else because it's just about collecting shit. I, I to thought be, that they, to be the clear, plan was... <laughs> I thought the plan was to release it along with the TV show, which is coming out next week. So There's a lot of great plans. Uh, I mean, my Photoshop <laughs> updated today to have a picture of Galadriel in the startup screen, so stuff's getting rolled wow. out, but I can't download the Lord of the Rings it's, mobile it's game still yet. In, it's still in beta, and to be clear, everyone who plays it is also still in beta forever. No <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, moving on. Hello. Moving on. Moving on. No transition. You decoding, man, you send you up. Reason, colon, nine, so nine, two, so. All right. This week I helped write a fall preview, which I haven't actually done in a really <laughs> long time. And I never know how useful these things are. Like, I grew up reading the Entertainment Weekly fall previews, but like, when it comes to just like putting together a list that you can look up on a calendar, like I've always wondered how useful it is, but people seem to be reading it. Um, you know, Pat, did you put on a paternity leave? Did you feel like you needed a real catch up on like what is even coming out this year? Yes, because I don't know if you read my list. I'm not Wait, saying you did, but in general, things are coming in theory, out at all times, so. is Patches back from? I'm back yeah. at work. That's yeah. oh there's bylines on Polygon.com and everything. <laughs> you <laughs> never thought he ended. would go back to work. Oh, guys, it's so Can't hard. Believe my it. brain does not work um i forgot how to do this version of work but uh no katie I, I thought your list was very successful because there's a lot of movies well not it wasn't as successful as the polygon movie preview i should be clear just a good mix of we action talked about like, list last week i didn't oh, see right. any scott adkins on the vanity fair list but anyway um i mean there's just a million things coming out i think the problem is we're also we're living where there's going to be film festivals. David's going to talk about all these movies and be exhausted by the time they actually come out. But when they actually come out, isn't when they come out on Netflix, like two weeks after, like when do movies even come no, out? More they don't than even come two out weeks the days now. we think. Net Netflix is, uh, you know, you, the nature is healing. Netflix is <laughs> with longer theatrical. theatrical windows. Um, you know, what's more interesting to me than the length of theatrical windows uh, and remains to be seen is how wide these theatrical releases are going to be. It doesn't matter to me if there's a six week gap between a movie only playing at the Paris in downtown in, in midtown Manhattan and then Netflix. I would be more interested in seeing if it opens in a thousand screens across the country. But uh, yeah. movies like 
White Noise and Bardo is getting a wide release. Um, they, they have not announced their plans about Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel. Which is the um, one but, you would think that they would actually want to put in a lot of theaters because yeah. people might actually pay to see it. No offense to you, Bardo. But the, back in the Roma days, it was like a three-week window was sort of the height that Netflix was willing to, like the highest bar that Netflix was willing to send, the longest gap they would have. And now we're getting five-week windows for some of these films. Um, and, uh, but as I said, it'll be more interesting to see how wide the movies go, but that's a short answer to your question. Ben. Fascinating. Now I'm more confused. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. why? Yeah. His so brain broke over his <laughs> endless so... eternity leave. <laughs> I raised a child and now I'm back raising the internet children. You know, so I feel like I can talk about like the awardsy prestige movies, many of which will be premiering at these film festivals soon, but. My sense of big movies, and you guys need to tell me if I'm wrong, is that there's Avatar 2, Black Definitely. Panther 2. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is there something else I'm missing? I think what, you're missing what horror else? stuff. I, Dave and I were talking about okay, Smile. Okay, right. Dave, are you excited for Smile? Uh, I'm hoping to be excited for Smile. I think it has a very effective trailer, uh, but, you know, I've been Slenderman before Patches. Oh, so wow. We're going to have to see how it goes. I think this one goes. has a bit more momentum. I mean, yeah, as you said, the, the trailer is very creepy. It effectively creeped out everybody at Polygon. Um, and I don't know, Paramount is behind this as opposed to like Screen Gems dumping it. I feel like Smile and, and Barbarian is the other kind of big horror release that's not a Michael's, Michael Myers movie this fall. Um, both are, are coming off Orphan First Kill. And I feel like all the horror people are just very excited. And I'm feeling. Very excited about scares. Did Orphan First Kill do really well? I mean, it just played on Paramount Plus, but it is getting oh. like this is the new malignant uh, endorsements and. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's quite that fervent, but it's you know people seem to be, you know, the same people that, that like Orphan, I suppose, uh, seem to be enjoying it. But you know, it's funny that the only thing that could end up killing Michael Myers was uh, Peacock or Paramount Plus, whatever the fuck streamer <laughs> that movie is going to. I honestly can't tell, but Peacock, that's enough. Yes, for- Peacock. For the second consecutive Halloween sequel, uh, they are going day and date with that one. And so why wouldn't another... they? It made a ton of money in theaters last year, and it got to debut. Yeah, in the uh, why wouldn't they do it's it? It's still stupid. Um, <laughs> there are, I mean, but but Patch's question is a good one because there are a lot of movies that I think people who listen to this podcast have good reason to be very excited about that are coming out this fall, but. The real big ticket items uh, at the box office are few and far between. I think we're probably in for a situation, at least until the Oscar season really gets going, that is similar to the way Top Gun ran the table at the box office uh, over the summer, where you see Black Panther, you know, linger around for months on end, um, and then Avatar Black joins Panther's it. coming out, That's what, like late. a month before Avatar? Like, yeah. it's not that long. Yeah, we got a whole Black Adam before that, and you told me oh, we were yeah, very so excited that, for See, Black there's Adam. a big movie I'm missing. You went straight to horror. But David I mean, loves so there's an no, There's no Marvel this fall? Uh, I mean, well, Black, Black Panther. Panther. Black Panther. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yes. Okay, besides Black Panther. That's Black the, Panther the, is the like biggest, Marvel Plus. The biggest Marvel. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I'm... There is a new Spielberg movie. Um, I, the yeah. Fablemans are not quite the brand that uh, you know the, the Navi are, but um, I think that you know, Spielberg the Avengers, movies, the Fablemans, they're all part I, of the and, same. I know <laughs> that West Side Story didn't uh, like the world on fire, even with its name appeal. But we live in a slightly different world now. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see which of these smaller movies is able to get a foothold at the box office. I'm afraid for all the doom and gloom stories. 
if none of them do. Um, but hopefully a few of them will, will break out based on their quality and the reaction to the Method Festivals. Do you, do yeah, you think very, that there are... Oh, sorry. Go, Dave. Oh, I'm very encouraged by something like Everything Everywhere is theatrical performance, but very discouraged by like 3,000 Years of Longing performance. Well, so I guess like right now uh, I'm like, what what sort of prestige movie are people looking for? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the 3,000 Years of Longing release is a unique beast uh just because of we'll talk you know, about the, that the, later in the yeah i mean it's it's uh it, it, no it did not do well but i don't think the conditions for its failure are necessarily the same as some of these other movies are going to encounter but i'm like <laughs> patches now anyway oh, so the whitney, the whitney no. houston yeah. biopic um i want to with somebody there's one of the few movies that's supposed to be coming out in like a prestige oscar movies that's coming out later this year that isn't going to any film festival. Like there's Babylon, the Damien Chazelle movie. There's the David O. Russell mm. movie, Amsterdam. And that's about it. Isn't like that almost Bohemian everything Rhapsody else. Path? Like aren't these musical biopics? Well, that's that's, that's, what that's I was interesting. It's like that's a what movie. I was thinking about with uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody um, that it could do the kind of Bohemian Rhapsody numbers. I mean, I mean maybe not that extraordinary, thing. but yeah. yeah but and, was- and so... Right. So uh, I was thinking about the, the Whitney Houston doc when I was wondering if that had performed well. Um, but it obviously they're not necessarily comparable, but I think for documentaries that they may have. But, um, you know, uh, Cassie Lemons, who's directing it and made Eve's Bayou, which is another 90s movie of fantastic renown and made our top 100 list. And uh, Harriet is returning Harriet, less successful, but uh, you never know. That could pop. Um, and look, I mean, like, a lot of things on Netflix, but like, is a Sam Mendes prestige picture about going to the movies Wolf, in, no. in England in the 1980s going to pop? Like, is I wonder if the um, Woman King in it's in September. Woman King and Bros are both premiering at TIFF and then opening yeah, in theaters uh, like a week or two later. They both seem to have a lot of uh, crowd pleasing potential. So I was going to those. Devotion, which uh, is by J.D. Dillard, and that is in the same vein as Top Gun Maverick. It is a literally a story has Glenn about- Powell in it. <laughs> it, it does. Uh, it is a story about one of the few black pilots during World War II, or not World War II. It would be the Korean War. Korean uh, War. I have not seen this movie. I am just going by notes of the Cinema Pants here. And it, it's uh, Jonathan Majors as the black pilot, not Glenn Powell. It sure is. Uh, yeah, I don't think there was much confusion there, but yes. Um, and, <laughs> I don't uh, want to worry. You know, like, if, is that able to, depending on how well it turns out, is that able to draft on some of the appeal that... Uh, that top was it able to use Top Gun Maverick as its wingman of sorts? Um, uh, we uh-oh. will see. Hey, I see what you uh, did there. Uh-uh. I mean, like, they're like, could the menu, uh, directed by <laughs> I, was I, the menu. I am hearing so many people, just like normal people in my life, talk about the menu and how excited they are. I don't know. If I, mean, I have talked to people who have seen it and say it's really good. Yeah, so I've not it's seen like it, the so Game I'm of Thrones factor. It's from the people who've done succession. There's a lot of TV talent, but. I don't know. People well, like seem I feel like you, you watch the you watch the trailer and you're like, oh, I think I get the twist of this. And what I hear is that you don't. And it's right. not as like obvious as it might seem, which is great news. And then, of course, there's the almost guaranteed block uh, blockbuster box office sensation. Eo, the uh, mm. Jersey film about a donkey, um, which was a big hit at Cannes. And it's coming oh, out on November yeah. 18th. Is that uh, I mean, I, I want to talk about my personal favorite guaranteed box office hit, Women Talking, the Sarah Polly movie that is sure. um, coming out. Uh, it's the United Artists release, uh, but, Uh-oh. you know, 
What's better box office juice than a movie called Women Talking? That's the UA, yeah. Yeah. So it'll come out in like a thousand yeah. theaters but, and no one But when people see the when people see the trailer and realize that the entire movie is literally just Amish women talking in a barn, I think it's Men really and I rough. women, thank you. Men and I women, I'm sorry. Again, funny. another movie I haven't seen yet. But uh it's going to move the needle up. I mean, I mean, personally for me, I am there day one. I'm hoping well, yeah, to see next week. Look at the fucking cast. They're it's gonna Francis kick you out of the McDormand. fan club if you it's don't go to that thing. It's Jesse It's Rumara. It's yeah. fucking Sarah Polly directing. She's you cast the movies, this baby. Movie, actually, David. I I basically did. Eighty um, million dollar. I can't wait. Just all the things you're listing. <laughs> That's for me. Uh, I'm going to. So wait, is that actually hard. coming out in the before the end of the year, Katie? The, the yeah. Sarah Polly yeah. movie. Yeah, it's just uh, it's set for December second, according yeah, to the, Box Office Mojo. Yeah, that's uh, definitely you know, coming out, and you will see it uh, being discussed at film festivals very soon. But um, there's not very much coming to the film festivals that seems like it might hold until next year. At this point, at least from no, no, nothing. Out, well, there there are a few TIFF movies I've seen that uh, that they already have distribution, and I just they they've already said. If privately, if not publicly, that they are planning on holding them for next year, but those are not the movies that anybody's talking about right now. Um, but I think the only question mark in terms of the movies that Katie has mentioned is Babylon, which mm-hmm. uh, you know the three-hour orgiastic Damien Chazelle movie about uh, like his dark, seedy, nudity-filled uh, singing in the rain about the transition from silent cinema to sound cinema, not a musical. Um, and which will that, have more sex in it, that or blonde? Like, I think probably blonde, but which the is gonna have more an like, NC 17 rating, isn't it? Like, the question is, like, which is gonna have is that about sex more like consensual sex in it, yeah, or like, yeah uh, right, right. Um, and and I'm not convinced that blonde has sex one way or the other so much as just like a naked woman being abused. Uh, but it's we'll, the Marilyn Monroe story, by the way, for people yes. who do not yes. know what blonde is. Um, but Babylon, they're they're you know they're still planning to have it ready by the end of December, but I think that one could be a real squeaker. Uh, and if they're not able to get it done by like the Thanksgiving deadline when all the voting bodies need to see it, it may somehow get punted. But with a movie like that, no, like, it's not going to get. It's coming out. It's like this the only year. other Paramount movie that is coming out yeah. this year. That's I mean, Paramount has out. Top Gun, which is going to get a Best Picture nomination. I you think, think so. So. Yeah, Put it on so. the. You're on the record here. Is this yeah, a and I moment? tweeted you about Michelle Yeoh already, so I'm just here. I am just giving That's you all true. my best Oscar yeah. predictions. Um, just, I promise to see Maverick before the end of the year. Wait, Mike, what, Mike, what are you going to eat when it gets a Best Picture nomination? <laughs> the other shoe will drop. <laughs> oh God! Uh, my question along the Matt Patches line is: There's a movie I really want to see, and I genuinely like. I I will go to a film festival and see it, but if I weren't going to a film festival, I genuinely don't know how I would see it. Which is weird. The Al Yankovic story, uh, mm. starring Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al Yankovic. The trailer looks. I mean, I the trailer has big. We're giving away all the best jokes vibes, but also looks very funny and sort of a walk hard mm. vein, as you would expect from a biopic about the rise and you know quote unquote fall of Weird Al Yankovic. Um, and but it is a Roku original. It is premiering on the Roku yeah. channel, which. I do not know how But the good news them. is, I think we can all get the Roku app on most devices, even if you do not own a Roku device, like you could get it on an Apple TV. So I believe we could, you could subscribe. Interesting. See, like this is information that the Roku channel should make available to people. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm interested I in that. I definitely need that's, to see the Weird Al movie. That's probably my number yeah, one do. question from my friends, even in this Game of Thrones season uh, slash She-Hulk. Is they're like, how do I how do I get access to the Roku channel? Uh, that's great though. I mean, I feel like your friends are the people 
like this is making assumptions who this movie is for in some ways and mm-hmm. it's, it's breaking you know, through to them definitely big dork friends are gonna love weird <laughs> album we like parody songs over in my group chat from high school you're below I mean, that trailer made um, me think that like we should have been making a wall card every five years like why would we stop with just one because then bohemian rhapsody comes out and it's like we can't spoof this this is the trump of uh <laughs> of biopics there's no outdoing it um, but okay, so now that we've gone over the slim pickings of blockbuster potential movies, uh, are I mean, there? <laughs> I think we, yeah, what are we started by EO? We didn't talk about Avatar. What are, what are the fest things that like, are dying the other things that you're? Yeah, what are the little the little things that you hope to be? I already said by? women talking. Uh, the Laura Poitras documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, about Nan wow. Golden and the opioid crisis, seems All really the interesting. All and the bloodshed in this economy. Like I know. There's so much <laughs> so much involved in there. Um, what I'm going down my list now. Uh, I'm intrigued by White Noise, uh, which I actually won't get to see because it's at Venice. Um, so oh, I, by, the time this pod, by the time this podcast comes out, Dave, you have to hold this podcast until at least 2 p.m. tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> Shouldn't be a problem. Uh, I, I figured as much. <laughs> uh, the white noise embargo will be up. Uh, it's interesting. I didn't, okay. Well, I, glad I, I have I, the podcast there. I hope yeah. you're all talking about it at some point when it's um, out in the world. Have you read the book? Katie, you I, I just, the I, I just, I just read the book, um, and I'm very interested. I, to see I the regret rereading the book so oh. soon before seeing the movie because the movie is such a faithful adaptation verbatim mm. that there was an and this is appropriate for their for a book like white noise and a a very intense feeling of deja vu um ah, which i write about a lot in my review um which i think is the longest review i've ever written for a film um wow. but there's a lot to chew on there uh anyway yeah white noise is interesting and, and netflix is saving that for the very very end of the year so that's one of the in terms of actually being on netflix um so that's a big one i another movie that i I can't talk about by the time this movie comes out, but I, I was very interested in one way or the other. Uh, is Tar, Todd Field's return to making movies uh, after In the Bedroom and Little Children? Katie, what are your thoughts on Tar? Uh, well, I haven't seen it. And I know, so I but that's why I'm asking. That's no, no, that's uh, why I'm asking you. But no, the the buzz around Tar is pretty immense. Uh, from what I'm hearing from, hearing from people who have seen it, who suggest that Kate Blanchett. You know, has the goods. That's I mean, the m- buzz Marvel star Kate Blanchett. David, I was gonna try to tease you, being like, ah, anything Kate Blanchett does, like who Carol Stan. But I feel like you're you've been rational about Kate Blanchett. Like you're not automatically gonna flip for whatever she. does. I have been exceedingly rational about Kate Blanchett. Uh, like you're no Nightmare Alley Stan. Not at all. Um, I I I think she is an incredibly talented performer uh, and br- brilliant, like truly brilliant, and like, a woman of many talents. Um, you look at her uh just like even the way that she ran the uh city it was the city theater company with her husband andrew upton um and a lot of them like manager anyway i'm getting into the weeds but yes very rational when it comes to my Cape Blanchett fandom uh not as um much of a zealot as i am with some of the filmmakers who have used her uh but this certainly looks like an interesting Cape Blanchett performance uh is all i can say and um, I just uh, I just yeah. rewatched Little Children, which is what I did instead Ooh. of seeing Three Thousand Years of Longing. And man, Ooh, that movie no. is good. Yeah, that movie that movie is good as fuck. That movie Todd has Field. no legacy, does it? Like Todd Field's legacy, I mean, it, is, legacy is like why hasn't Todd Field made another movie? Basically, right. um, directing like it's, credit card commercials. 
like oh. it's about like suburb like the like stifling of suburbia which feels like kind of dated but it's also about police brutality which i like had forgotten about entirely oh, um sure. it's um toby emmerich as uh um uh not toby emmerich is it, is it, um, Noah Emmerich. Noah Emmerich. Toby, Toby Emmerich was the the. Toby Emmerich like makes movies. Literally yes. everyone confused tonight because my brain not is not rolling Emmerich been either. It's just going from screenings it. to having a toddler uh, freak out to more screenings. Wait, but, did you uh, know that Toby Emmerich is Noah Emmerich's brother? Yeah, yes. that's why I brought them up. Brought it up. Uh, but they're not related to Roland Emmerich. No, is... Roland Emmerich okay, comes from a different out. part of the world. Um, but the uh, I, I'm interested in Todd Field as someone who made I thought two extremely good movies and then disappeared off the face of the earth for uh, in the public eye anyway for 16 years and those two movies he made came on the back of playing a pivotal supporting role in what IndieWire says is the best oh film of the gosh, entire 1990s no, no, Eyes Wide no. Shut so Jesus Christ uh, the piano player no. right he's the Nick Van Kill. yeah yeah it's a great it's a great performance it, an indelible character uh, he did try and make I, Blood Meridian for like years oh and no years. he, I think that's part he of tried to make several things as he revealed in the interview with Kyle Buchanan that I obviously did not get uh, because he was going to the New York Times today. It was published today about what he's been up to over these last 16 years. Oh. He was involved in a lot of very ambitious projects that uh, he, he knew. Uh, very he's about to direct Keanu Reeves in a uh, Devil in the White City Hulu show. I mean, Get excited. Todd Field happens, is back. But, um, the Todd Field this, uh, Tar is his first original screenplay. Uh, and so I... I I'm very interested, uh, wink, wink, to see what he does uh, with with working not, you know. With well, I haven't seen material. Tar, but I do like the trailers, and every time I watch it, I send Katie a message and I ask her, what is Tar about? I don't no, know. I mean, the trailers, the trailers, uh, let you. it be known, the trailers are masterpieces. The trailer for Little Children is one of the best trailers ever cut in history. Uh, and the trailers, for, I mean, truly, that is without hyperbole, it has been true for 16 years now. Go and watch it. Rain uh, in that trailer? I remember it. There sure is. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, I, uh, when I put the movie back on, I was like, I seem to remember there being train whistles in this. It's literally the first sound you hear when you put the movie on. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I the trailer correctly. for Little Children and the trailer for Tar both are carried by music, but also feel like have a certain musicality to them and, and really are pieces of art into themselves. Uh, and uh, I, I encourage you to check out the trailer for Tar, whether or not you have any interest in this movie. Both are interesting. Uh, what else? I mean, there's a part, there's a lot of hand holdovers. There's Digital Leap, Park Chan-wook movie. Okay, okay. Um, there's so many movies right, going. Dave, we got to wrap this up. Yeah. Everyone sound off with one more movie. Dave? Uh, the Whale, because we aren't going to oh, get uh, Brendan Fraser being a Batgirl villain anymore. And this is supposed to be the season of Brendan Fraser. Uh, now it's just The Whale. Dave, are you not, are you not nervous about the discourse around that movie? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm living for the discourse look, already. I'm recapping multiple hours of podcasting every week, a show that is currently just about child brides. So, no, I'm not worried about the discourse <laughs> around the whale. <laughs> Greta Frazier will wear. I'm definitely more worried about the disc. I'm worried about the discourse around white noise and uh, the Department of Hitler studies. Mm. Just, I'm oh, excited for that to inspire not, a lot of dumb arguments. I am not worried about that at all, especially because it has, I mean, I'm sure there will be think pieces about everything under the sun, but that is, is so true to the novel and the novel has yeah. been sort of a totemic part of American literature for 30 plus years now. So uh, they're going to cancel I, Don DeLillo, David, just you wait. That, that is not a concern. I think uh, the whale uh, I think is going to, and I've not seen the whale. I've not talked to anyone who's seen the whale. I think that just based on the premise and Darren Aronofsky leaning all the way in as he always does, 
that that I movie is going to trigger uh, a lot of I feel very, well. I feel very. Nervous I would be more nervous about the discourse coming up on on Black Adam when it disrupts the DC universe status quo. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's right. How he's he's not a hero. He's an anti-hero. He he uh, he, he hurts people. Um, Pat, did you, know, you pick one? Pick one. I actually was going to pick the whale. I'm I'm <laughs> so excited for Aronofsky's return, and as you said, the the discourse. I I welcome the discourse of of people trying to deal with Brendan Fraser playing a 600 pound man. I mean, the the premise of it sounds very tragic and deep and interesting. Hong Chao is in the movie. Mantha Morton. I don't know. This is like. This is what we should go to the movies for. Challenging material. I'm ready to be challenged by this movie. Fuck the discourse. Uh, yeah. Debate me, coward. Debate me. Um, <laughs> wait, I'm going to jump off Samantha Morton and say she said uh, the movie about Jodie Cantor and Megan Toey's um, oh, Harvey Weinstein reporting. Samantha yeah. Morton shows up in the trailer and like, piece, I haven't seen the movie, but piecing together on the book, she's playing this like pivotal character in their investigation. And um, I don't know, a spotlight about Harvey Weinstein? Sure. I want to watch it. I, yeah, with Carrie Mulligan like and TV Zoe Kazan. I'm a little worried about that well, one. Well, that's what they said about Spotlight. That's true. <laughs> it's actually a very good movie. I, I just very I'm scrolling through a list of uh, 2022 remaining releases, and apparently R.I.P.D. is getting a sequel direct <laughs> video. So I'm going to put that uh-huh. I'm sliding that one Great. into attention. It's called Rise oh, of the boy. Damned. Jeffrey oh, Donovan is in it. Help me in. I thought you were going to say Jeffrey Dahmer. And I was going to Jeffrey like, yeah, Dahmer's in it. They've exhumed <laughs> his body. It's a bit of a stunt cast, you could say. <laughs> you could say. He's got he's a really been, method. He's got a he's got a lead ups of Netflix documentaries promoting his persona. The uh the fall is packed. People should tell us what they want to hear us talk about because there's gonna be a lot of killing darlings, but not uh, we, we haven't even gotten to Timothy Chalamet as a cannibal, so mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. sexy teen cannibal. And we didn't really talk about Avatar, but like obviously what we'll is there to say? Good I imagine we'll be In talking about time. Avatar. No, yeah, we're not gonna skip it. I can't wait. Uh, I mean, I'm my, my significant other is uh which is like I'm like Witches. first of all I'm seeing it in theaters, uh, even though, you know, pandemic. 3D? Second of all, oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, I Second thought we were all, talking about Bones and All still. Oh, I, I, would, I, I will, will be there for all Timmy. In 3D. <laughs> uh, but yeah, second of all, I'm very tempted about the 4K 3D re-release of the original Avatar that's going to be out there because... I would love to see the I have not Avatar seen Avatar in 3D in, 3D in several years. To do that. Yeah, but isn't it going to be high frame rate? Yeah, Ooh. but that's better for 3D. Uh, it's better for cinema. Uh, you, no, but if Katie, you want anybody really doing a high frame rate upscale, you want no, James Cameron doing really it on one of his movies. Is the idea that our next opportunity to see Titanic in theaters, which is going to come you mean next, high frame rate, it's going to be high frame rate, or so I've read. Realistic. David, the uh, thing boy. you don't understand is that the Navi actually move at 120 frames a second, and <laughs> when we saw the original Avatar, it was slowed down. So we're um, seeing yeah. more. It was like watching all those hand cranes. Just, just to close the loop on this segment, let me say, and I hope I'm not breaking apart to do this, that in Werner Herzog's new documentary, he does inevitably discuss the Navi and have a tail fuck. Thank so. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's only brief, but uh, so worth get, the price. Get hype. Yeah. Thank God. Movie of the year. Uh, Dave, I just finished Only Murders in the Building season two, and I kind of thought I might not finish it because I don't know, like it felt like 
not appointment viewing and i was like oh, wow. i can just let this go Betrayal. but i know you were really appointment viewing it mm-hmm. um and i'm so glad i finished it so i'm not here to diss it but i'm very intrigued by like why it felt for you like the must watch of the summer uh well, first of all it's just pleasant to see these characters uh hang out i think that's one of the things that i really overlooked about the first season is they did such a good job with the characters that even when the uh murder investigation goes off the rails uh in a couple different ways in this second season i would tune in just to see them figure it out and bumble through it and try to find like a conclusion because I think the the characters are and remain uh, pretty solid. Uh, the only thing that was weird about Only Murders in the Building is it felt like it wanted to be very twisty um, in a way that I don't think it was successful in building those twists as much as it just was, oh, we're going to pivot our characters to something else this week, which worked you for me. You feel like the, the season two was twistier than season one? Was what? You said like the twi- it was twistier than in season two than season one. I think season two is attempting to be twistier with, I guess, how much, uh, I guess, the size of the twists. There's some twists in season mm. two where I think it takes us completely off the case for a long period of time. Yeah. Uh, specifically one that they make fun of within the season where it's, I think, like the second episode, the bird confesses that he knows who did it. And, like, mm-hmm. that's the end of the second episode. And I'm like... Uh-huh. Obviously, the bird doesn't know who did it and couldn't communicate it to you. So that was a really weird. Otherwise, the show would be over. Yeah. Yeah, And then um, the the funny thing is both they named the finale episode. I know who did it, which is what the bird says. And they have the podcast fans uh, from the first season are now sort of around in the second season. And they give them a conversation where they're like, and that bird episode. (laughs) And so at least they went through it knowing that some of their i think cliffhangers were soft there were softer cliffhangers maybe is a better way to put it than more twists uh yeah i mean the first season like and it's been a while since i watched the first season but it felt compact in a way that the second season wasn't because like you're bringing back old characters like nathan lane is um petty demas and then um guy who plays his son what's his son's name theo Theo, Uh, yeah he's deaf and speaks asl um and then you have like Shirley MacLaine is in the first episode and Amy Schumer is a new resident in the building and then Amy Schumer is like not relevant to the show at all. Although I guess like Sting also was not relevant in the first season. Um, but it had that second season thing of being like, we're going to add so much to this world and then also have a mystery on top of it that it felt overstuffed. And then you get to like episode seven or eight and they're like, wait, we haven't solved this mystery at all. And that's what the <laughs> podcast fans are talking about. Um, but it does come in for a really solid conclusion, I think. But is yeah, this what I'm people very- liked about season one? Like this what? Is, what do you mean? People people liked how, and I was complaining. So only Murders of the Building is a show that I reluctantly watch. I do not watch it on purpose. It's something that my wife watches, and I watch it with her. Um, so I wasn't even going to watch season two, and then she started, and I started. You guys were watching it. I decided to, to dig in. Um, something I don't like about the show that everyone seems to have liked about season one, and I certainly didn't like it in season two as I watch. I'm about halfway through. Um, is that like all the episodes are kind of different. Like, one episode is in this style, or one episode's, like, gonna take this framework, or care about the podcast assistant, Tita Faye's assistant, or something, and she's gonna be really important, like, lead off the narration, or, like, last last season they had the all-ASL episode, or, or the deaf episode, and, um, while interesting, I'm just like, 
pick a like pick a lane. Why is every episode this weird sketch experiment? I again, that's I'm coming an off interesting of watching complaint of, to have about this show. I know on some level it's like, oh, it's experimental. It's interesting. It's it's playing it like playing in the sandbox every every episode. I'm coming off of finishing Six Feet Under and like where the form is very particular and and similar each episode so that you can really burrow into the characters and i feel like they're always kind of putting up barriers between the characters and then also throwing character twists into it like this season with martin short's character maybe not or not being the father of his son as they discover in genetic testing um just like is this supposed to be deep or not is it is it just like being a goofy mystery with wacky characters or or not. Well, I feel like it successfully throws in depth. Like, I care about a lot about um, Martin Short's character. Uh, my God, what is his name? Why can't I think of any of the character names? Oliver like Martin, Martin Short. Oliver Putnam <laughs> um, and Charles Savage. Um, about him and his son. And I care about, like, Mabel remembering her dad. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like those character moments, like, they hit. Even in the first episode, they were, like, do, taking, like, a poignant moment with each of these characters. And it doesn't detract from the zaniness i i mean i'm i'm a huge sucker for the dynamic between steve martin and martin short too like i just yes. find them funny i will always find them funny and steve i get martin that they're not just for everybody. hilarious there's an episode where they're they do kind of like so a 70s funny. flashback where they play in this case it's called summer of sam but it's basically like assassin or something um and all steve martin does is dressed in a funny wig and sit in the back of the room half the time and i'm <laughs> laughing at him like martin short's doing his martin short thing where he's being so zany and romping around the room and then i'm just laughing at Steve Martin just sitting or like him playing Brazos, his fake detective character, I find very funny. When the mo- when the show's a bit more like low key hijinks and has a more, and I know this is like a damning thing to say, but like almost like a Woody Allen type humor, hmm. uh, I'm, hmm. I'm more into it than when it's kind of like swinging broadly between its dramatic points and its comedy points. And I feel like this season is a bit more severe. In that way, to your, to your point about it, like kind of revving up until the end and, and getting good. Uh, I also think it's amazing that uh, season two had room to add a second bad actress along Selena Gomez and put Cara Delevingne in the show. Wow, so that was a pretty wow. amazing. Wow, <laughs> just a Cara little Delevingne, kick there. She, Cara Delevingne was tough for me. Like, I get that she's there as a as an effective red herring. Um, and maybe we should like fully spoil the finale because I was delighted by how that finale played out. I was going to um, say you're you're selling the show here, so if people are going to dive back in, you better take them to true. the finish line. I mean, dive back in, and I'm going to spoil the entire ending for them. Is that I mean, what I people like want? people like Dave need all the spoilers to know if they really want? Well, uh, I mean, uh, yes, uh, that was <laughs> off podcast, but yes, everybody should know that about me. Season two isn't so much about the mystery. I wouldn't say that mm. that was even a draw for me past like i don't know episode three where i realized it wasn't a priority for the show either i love they added the a precocious child katie how are you watching the show the um the teen daughter yeah the teen daughter the teen daughter adult. episode that, that daughter is an adult she's in college also oh, the teen daughter really episode is great because they spend a great period of time talking about uh <laughs> charles savage's singing career and trying to explain it <laughs> and like that is a fantastic scene where just everybody's sitting around and doing their bits in a kitchen and i would like more of that the problem with i think season one was good it was defining itself as it went along the problem with season two is they were kind of stuck with a murder they put at the end of season one with a character that i could not like even the the day you know we spent what what she did on her last day bunny folger you don't yeah. like bunny folger i mean she's fine but it's she's uh a perpetual uh like her first season position was like a, as a perpetual grump and so the only place you can kind of go with that is like 
maybe she wasn't as much of a grump. But maybe they don't... she was a person. Yeah, which is good, but I don't think as compelling of like a murder suspect. Uh, like I know that it has to be some sort of murder investigation. That's a premise of the show. But I think the first one sort of uh, did a good job of also spoofing the uh, crime podcasts by doing these little offshoot episodes where it's like, and this week, you know, that 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 one serial episode that everybody listened to where, you know, Sarah Kading tracks the cell phone tower data and you're just like listening to an hour worth of podcast and you're never going to remember any of the information. You're never going to get your life back. There are parts mm. of that uh, that are here, but I think it need, it's not as sharp of a satire of its subject matter this season as it was the first season. Uh, it's I more, don't care about uh, that at all. I don't care about it parroting two crime podcasts at all. I mean, I think it could be it could be both of those things. As somebody who sure. you know like runs a podcast and they have the degree of you know podcast fans, and then obviously a competing podcast. There's a way to sort of do that uh, that isn't you know distracting with the murders. I think that. This season just had uh, too much on its mind that it added in addition to its end of the season cliffhanger, which is curious because this season also ends in that way where we get a peek at what season three is going to be and uh, the murder we're going to be uh, presumably solving. Did you enjoy your did you enjoy your peak? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, that was probably the only thing that I had spoiled for me. Uh, just by scrolling through Twitter and they're like, hey, redacted cast members, join Only Murders in the Building. And I'm like, whoa, I better watch oh, this episode now then. I had missed that somehow um, and was completely surprised by Yeah, so it was Java because I heard her go, holy shit, when he walked out uh, of the door he walks out of in the final episode. I loved that setup at the end. I thought that was such a great way to end the season. Yeah, and at least the smart thing they did is they did a time jump so mm -hmm. we have the possibility of backtracking with characters we care about. So yep. hopefully they've uh, self-corrected a little bit. That's that's probably the best thing about Only Murders in the Building season two. Not as good as season one, but it also has like sprinkles of self-awareness that they know they might not be hitting the highs until the big climax. But uh, slow motion, scared of inside of tomatoes, <laughs> all those things are just fucking that gold. whole. I'm such a sucker for like a. All right, we're going to set up a fake ruse to catch someone and then you don't know when the ruse ends and when reality hits and like I don't follow twist that well so I'm like what's real? What's fake? I I <laughs> and I I like the building tapestry. Like the neighbor who's a librarian and he has kind of that meet cute with the other neighbor who's a singer. Like I I care about that guy and Jackie mm -hmm. Hoffman is like the the woman who is friends with Bunny like I like when you can get all the building together and I hope they find a way to do that in season three. I and mean, it sounds like they might not and they might like shift to an entirely different milieu, which maybe is the smart thing, but I yeah, like that murder was definitely not in the building unless definitely I not in the building misunderstood what was in the building. Maybe uh, what's her face. A <laughs> uh, new control person has uh, put up a theater. Uh, a theater. Maybe the building the year. changes. It could be a different mm. building. Ooh, now that we've learned that this one has like, Secret the passages. Changing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it sounds like only Katie murders is going in to, that uh, building. Katie, it sounds, sounds like, like you're going to just what? have like a complete aneurysm during Glass Onion, a Knives Out story. Or oh yeah, I, I'm I never just... going to follow the twist of Glass Onion. You're kidding? It's gonna be great. I didn't follow the twist of Knives damn Out. Mind. Yeah. Would you? Did you know how Knives Out was going to end? No, when you no, were no, no, it? definitely not. I'm just like 
just hearing you describe what excites you about this show, I'm just like, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. only oh, days away for you to see this movie. And that's you're true. Going to melt. You're going to melt. Yep, that's I'll true. I you. should really I'll go on an you. Agatha Christie kick and just satisfy all these, uh, scratch all those itches. We put Katie in the bottle to talk wow. about George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing, a very interesting fantasy <laughs> movie. Interesting, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 first of all, I want to start off with, like, I, I'm in the positive column of this movie, but also would describe it as incredibly messy and ambitious. Um, uh, it is the story of a... Um, a Researcher of stories, played by Tilda Swinton, who a, narrat- uh, finds... a narratologist. Thank you, a narratologist. Can you Wait, how many movies do we get about narratologists? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it it's possible you could make an argument. All of them. Uh, mm. This is a narratologist who finds a gin, played by Idris Elba, in a uh, little bottle uh, that she uh, finds in Turkey, I believe. And um, they, he, she, of course, pops out and says, uh, I'm going to give you three wishes for whatever your heart desires. And she picks it apart like the narratologist she is. And that leads to the majority <laughs> of the movie being stories told between these two beings inside a hotel room. Do we need any more lead up before we discuss this movie? Um, no, I think that pretty much uh, nails it. I mean, yeah, it's it good. It could seem like a big fantasy movie, and I guess on some level it is, but it is also a lot of people talking in a hotel room. Oh, it's funny. I had the I had the exact opposite reaction when I heard the really? logline for this movie was that I was afraid that it was just two people talking in a hotel room, and it had it smacked of a COVID movie, even though it was conceived long mm. before then, uh, and was on its face pleasantly surprised that the movie had a much bigger scope. Although ironically, it turned out that the parts of the movie. That I thought were much more successful are just the bits of Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba talking to each other in a hotel room. Yeah, because the rest is it's all sort of like fairy tales within fairy tales is the way that this narrative plays out. Even though we are assured at the very beginning that this actually did happen to this narratologist, uh, it's still presented as a fairy tale sort of as a way of uh, we can accept the fantastic for its truths when it's presented as a fairy tale, I think is what we're supposed to get out of this. Patches, what did you think about 3,000 Years of Longing? I mean, I want to preface this by saying, like, George Miller has not made, like, a ton of movies. So I think anything he makes is an event in its own right. And I was rather astonished to learn, like, last week that this movie was just coming out. It's it's out there in movie theaters. No one was talking about it. I hadn't mm. seen the trailer or anything. I mean, I, I have been in a bit of a mm. vortex, but I don't Mad think Max it's a weird is a trailer. Lot. Mad Max is a lot bigger than he is. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I don't think he's really a mainstream filmmaker. He's not like Christopher Nolan or something. Um, and he and a lot of his movies are not associated with adult film, like a Happy Feet and Babe. I don't think people revere those in the way that the three of us might, and and many others who follow have followed Miller's career. 
But for me, a new George Miller movie is an event. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta get out there and and see this thing. And the best part was I saw it on Sunday night when all the box office receipts were coming in. It's like this movie is colossal, Bob. And I'm like, oh great, I'll be one of the eight people to see it. And certainly I was in an empty theater watching Three Thousand Years of Longing, um, which these days not a bad, not a bad idea. Um, but yeah, what did I think of Three Thousand Years of Longing? It's it, it kind of made my head spin. It was I didn't know what to expect and. To both of your points, there's a lot of talking in hotel rooms about like narrative structure and, and interrogating truth and, and fiction and like what the craft of storytelling is truly all about and what joy we find in it and what lies we tell ourselves using it, its power. Um, and then there are also just fantastical, divine like Im- images. I mean, it reminds me of Tarsem's The Fall sometimes, where we're just getting these mm. gorgeous painterly uh, well, fantasy images a lot of, more um, garish yeah. than than the fall the fall is very painterly and i think that uh you're George not Miller's a fan aesthetic. of the john seal like mad max adjacent <laughs> hyper color i mean it's it's not I like Zack it's, it's probably slow-mo but. it's probably accurate to say that i'm not a fan of it but it's more relevant just that it, it's a very different vibe than the fall it's a lot more garish and yes uh, the fall being ethereal and this being very much I, I, the george miller style of, this, of like weaving around i the am camera a fan of this movie but the, but they're also episodes. like but the premise would seem sort of stayed and and reined in for george miller but i would say within the first like three minutes of this movie you have like weird creatures lunging at the screen and there's like uh, uh, a magical being of some kind stalking tilda swinton through an airport who never really comes up again and um, there, there are the movie is very in your face about the fact that it is not a sedate drama about a woman talking to a genie in a hotel room. Yes, I mean, uh, I again agree with everybody. It sort of reminded me of like a um, like a short story that would appear in like a science fiction magazine or like an old EC Comics sort of uh, story where it's got it's really has its teeth into a bunch of big ideas and sort of squishes its premise into exposing those ideas but then maybe has some problems closing off that sort of free floating idea space so when this movie ends it ends on it seems like an uplifting note uh but i wasn't done with the movie mentally yet i hadn't caught up to where it was by the time the runtime actually ended, uh, which I think is what sort of turns me off on it as a complete work, or what makes me call it call it messy, is because there are some things that are very sharp uh, and told to you in like uh, repeated beats, uh, like you know somebody swallowing when they fall in love or something as simple as that, uh, versus other things which took me a while to sort of like unwind, which is like why it's so important that genies are made or gins are made uh with electromagnetism uh which is sort of like a buried <laughs> Can metaphor we pause that- on this yes uh idris elba's gin is an electromagnetic gin we see the process of how gins are made too right like electromagnetism mm-hmm. evolves into like organisms or something there's a chart uh and he at at some point in the movie he visits the hadron large collider because uh, he mm-hmm. goes on tour of humanity after he leaves the hotel room. What this movie is so idiosyncratic and weird. David, you kind of alluded to this. 
that, that I guess Miller's been developing this for a long time. Do you know how this has been incubated for him? Because this is, it does feel like a COVID movie. Let's just get two great actors in a hotel room. But this does seem to be something that's kind of lingered with him his whole career. He seems, he was a doctor, right? He, he wasn't, he didn't set out to be a filmmaker. He is, uh, has like all a medical I can tell you brain, is a scientific that brain. And he has, he has a, a, he has a medical here. brain. He's watched at least nine seasons of VR. He is basing this movie <laughs> on an AS buy it short story that he's been trying to adapt since at least the late 1990s, um, which is how I know that the movie wasn't really initially conceived any sort of COVID parameters in mind, even though they shot it during the pandemic. Um, and that may have impacted its design slightly. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is a story that I think has appealed to him uh, for a long time. But if you watch something like Lorenzo's Oil, which is another, you know, on paper is a movie that could have been a very straightforward, uh, you know, almost like movie of the week drama um, that he turns into sort of like an operatic portrait of a kid with generative brain disorder. Uh, you know, th this is kind of par for the course of George Miller. I mean, he is definitely marched to the beat of his own drummer. And you have that Fury Road spirit in a movie that has very little overlap with The Wasteland. Um, and this is, but who he is? I mean, he likes to find the soul, the heart, the sort of the beating heart underneath all that excess uh, and the noise and chaos of the world. And it's what he's doing here. And yeah. I think what's most interesting about, you know, I saw this movie at its premiere in Cannes. I was in like the ninth balcony with, as again, I'm sitting in the steerage of the plane going to these festivals and I'm on the fucking roof of the theaters. Uh, in a cheap tuxedo, the screen looks like a, a, a original iPad, iPod, iPod even, what I meant to say, <laughs> screen. And uh, I was just kind of trying to hang on to the experience of it all. And I found myself surprised by how moved I was and how poignant I found that ending to be that last third where it sort of comes back wow. down to earth, um, even in a... a accented way, not the character's accent, but it's a, sort of the George Millerian accent, everything's heightened to a degree. Um, there, it does get to something true. I'm not sure if I could exactly put my finger on what that is now so many months after seeing it, but it, 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 I, it did feel like all of this CGI and all this spectacle and all these flashbacks, which I found kind of exasperating at the time, uh, you know, as they're happening, I do think they're the weakest part of the movie, even if you have like spiders exploding into other spiders and shit like that. Um, sort of like air sacks. It's a man's maybe. head turning yeah. into a spider god exploding <laughs> into spiders. Into lots of little spiders. Just like yeah. air sacks, Arabian Nights sort of vibe. Um, yeah, I, I felt like he gets to the emotional underbelly that's underwriting all this stuff. And, I, I want to talk. I cared I, I about wanna, the genie and yeah, and told his women. I want to like at some point ring our spoiler going, even if nobody cares what a spoiler is about this movie, and and talk about this ending. But I, I did want to just wind back. A little, I, I, I found myself pretty gripped from the beginning that maybe left you a little exhausted. One thing that came to my mind watching this was, have any of you read Ishmael, that Daniel Quinn novel? novel yeah, about the, about the gorilla. Talks to a gorilla, yes. The third handle. Um, you gotta find the third handle, says Ishmael. Yeah, where like, George Miller's writing a philosophical novel with this movie, or doing almost like a video essay. The fact that it opens with Tilda Swinton standing in front of a image of the DC heroes talking about uh, mythos and, and, and what characters mean in, for culture, knowing that George Miller was going to make a Justice League movie at some point. I'm like, I'm just seeing all this uh, Millerese at work, I suppose. Lots of, of, of biographical notes here. And then trying to wrap in, like, reckoning with 
with story and and talking about i mean there's some mad max in here too about just like human life and and how stories carry it through and like can we avert doom through just telling stories and i i i still was kind of caught up in just seeing idris elba be a gin and like blow into a bottle or hook up with sheba queen sheba and like Mm-hmm. Just have there's a lot of nudity in this movie. Um, I think George Miller appreciates the human body in all of its forms, skinny and large and all strange and you know, we're all strange beings and I think he appreciates every single one of us and wants to capture them on movie cameras and I I can watch people do stuff forever in beautiful costumes, naked, whatever. This movie really has it all. I was pretty entranced by it. But to your point, David, also exhausted by just like all the rumination all of the deviations all like there's just so many things floating through this it feels maybe like his most personal movie and and it, it feels like i'm being in, i'm inside his brain i haven't had that experience in a, in a while where someone can work at this budget and make something so erratic um so maybe i wasn't loving it but i i certainly enjoyed it existing if that makes sense like this is an yeah, artist I at feel- work I feel like this is the type of movie that could have been the savior of the August film hole. Uh, just if more people saw it, like I, <laughs> that's uh, how like, it works. Yeah, I know, but it's like not even just like I think. A pe- I think if you see it, you're gonna want to talk about it and think well, about it for a little while. This, I, I agree with that. The story also goes that you know this was planned as a much smaller release, and the theater owners were so desperate for oh, content. Wow. Uh, essentially talked uh, United Artists into going to a wider like 2,500 screens or something like that just to fill those empty rooms. And that's why, and without sort of the marketing budget to support it. Um, and it just didn't really work out or translate. They hadn't built the kind of groundswell of support and attention for it that they needed. Uh, I think had this movie opened on 10 screens, 50 screens, 100 screens, um it, it could have it would have a very different complexion around around the numbers it was pulling in it would still be a 60 million dollar movie that wasn't grossing a ton of return um you know i personally would never fund a non george <laughs> miller uh a non mad max george miller movie these days but i'm very glad that someone out there You're is willing to do that well, yeah. is this the one for one for him, one for us? Because he's currently shooting Furiosa. Right yeah, now. well, he's, mean, he my, didn't do the one for he didn't do the one for him at Warner Brothers, which I find. Well, yeah, I mean, my my <laughs> prediction of Furiosa, which will obviously perform much much better at the box office than 2000 Years of Longing, is that that movie is going to bother a lot of people too because people are going to be expecting Fury Road two, and they're going to find a very talky uh, post apocalyptic drama with maybe a little really? bit of action in it from a 80 year old filmmaker uh, who has already made his three year old. So, um, you know, I, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think this is a, is a really interesting movie. Um, How do you, you, let's, I want to wind down and talk. Specifically about the ending. Cause I, I, that seems to have been the part that, that really grabbed you. So, I mean, for people who haven't seen it, who don't mind wading into spoilers, uh, when Tilda Swinton's Alethea uh, discovers this gin, he grants her three wishes, but she has nothing to ask for. Her whole thing is like, I don't want anything. And eventually, after hearing his many stories of failed love and being trapped in this bottle over the centuries, she wishes to to be 
in love or like for him to love her and she brings him back to America and like they have this very interesting relationship where she holds on to him she doesn't complete her three wishes which is important for him to escape the bottle she kind of keeps him contained um and i wonder what you what you made of the of the ending her hearing this very maybe tragic story of his and wishing for love when she didn't think she needed anything and then keeping him trapped i i i, I don't know i've it's been a few days since i've seen this i'm not yeah, I, totally sure I thought that it was... to, what to make of it I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I I remember feeling like there's something touching about how they arrive at the idea that sort of like finding true love is no less fantastical in this world that we live in, a world that is filled with so much animosity and hate. You see those racist old ladies in the third chapter uh, who are embodying oh, yeah. it. Uh, then it's no less fantastical than finding a 3,000-year-old genie in a bottle in a hotel room in Turkey. Um, and uh, I think... You know, the idea that I'm just like cribbing for my own review here <laughs> that I was alluding to as vaguely as I could because we're, you know, not trying to spoil the movie then, but that there are um, there, there are still so many things in this world, so many mysteries to this world uh, that we don't understand about each other, about the people who live in our own backyard, uh, somebody that, that, that we um, choose to sort of be antagonistic towards rather than embracing the mystery of it all. Uh, accepting the unknown and making it the known and finding the pleasure that comes in that. Um, and I think that this movie is trying to bring the magic that it finds in the, the magic lamp into a world that, you know, doesn't support that kind of magic uh, where, where, and to do so sort of through the power of storytelling and, and use that as the bridge between the two. I mean, it goes back to this being one of several recent movies about storytelling uh, that wears that on its face. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think that like that, that sort of bittersweet reconciliation at the end of like the world that they live in versus the world of the story that they've inhabited over the two hours before that is, is very well done. Um, yeah. And it ends on shots of like a very artificial looking London. Um, they were obviously <laughs> shot in Australia somewhere, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it all felt like a, a fitting grace note to the movie from what I, what, what I remember of it. Dave, how about you? Did it end on a on a a positive uh, yeah. note? Or a I mean, note? I do sort of like that after having had the experience with the gin, she's uh you know has to sort of let him go and let that fantasy go, or more, I think more importantly, let that story end or that chapter of the story end. Uh, but what really sort of got to me after the movie ended, and I was trying to piece it out, is that by making the gin like electromagnetic it means the more he has to exist in modern society the more he breaks down so it's like technology is bringing us closer to these stories uh that are both toxic and unreachable because we're getting you know, we're beaming our stories through text messages through television things and it's actually it breaks down the fantastical element that uh, she's using as a glue to make her feel good in her London life. And it's just sort of the idea of there's uh, like, it's 3,000 years of longing, uh, not just because uh, 3,000 years of solitude would sound like a weird crossover, uh, but it's about sort of building your own little world for yourself or being trapped in a very myopic view of what the world needs to be. And then when that expands, realizing that the more you expand, the less you have 
that's that special magic place where everything sort of makes sense. At least that's what I got out of the ending. Uh, which, again, I didn't get at the very end because it ends on sort of like a happy note. He comes back to visit. He has a supernatural soccer ball kick that pleases some <laughs> children. Right. And, uh, you know, she's happy back writing about her stories about stories. Uh, so there isn't like a big change for either of them in terms of their... Uh, I mean, I guess status quo, he's technically now free, but he still comes back to visit. But just the idea of there are these stories and they could be clarifying and they can show you what you want, like a wish. But no matter what that is, when you expose it to the toxic reality we've created right. as human beings with society, it by its very nature is going to start dissolving these stories, which doesn't make them any less necessary, but it does take away their capability of being real and helping us. Or at least that's what I got out of it. So sort of it was happy with a melancholy twist because the characters are fine, but the audience has sort of been exposed to the fact they're fucked, which I think is a lot of George Miller movies. If you, if you dig into them. Yeah. She describes enough. a bit in the beginning too of um, like magic, magic. We've, we, we don't really have magic, right? We have science now. We've figured everything out, how everything works i wonder if that's a sign yeah, i mean George miller lament about his own craft of <laughs> i can only imagine what a mad max uh fury road making of book feels like to george miller ultimately but i feel like the, then this movie is this is a rebuttal to the way of thinking that we sort of that you've explored the whole map there are no uncharted uh you know territories of the world or of the mind um i think he is saying that you know there's such a vast distance a gap uh, between even two people in this world um, that you know, and uh, that we need stories to help bridge. But that, that and and sort of reasserting the value of those stories uh, and the mystery that are contained therein. And I think he's trying to say with this movie that like it can feel that way, like there that all the magic of this world is gone, but it is hiding in plain sight and sometimes in the most you know mundane of containers. Um, it's a, it's a sweet movie. Yeah, I feel like this one's going to be like Nope for me, where maybe while watching it, I was not completely satisfied, but I'll be thinking about it and talking about it a lot, and there's so much to chew on because it feels really personal and uh, idiosyncratic in that way. I mean, electromagnetic gins. Where are you going to get that? Other than That's right. Only in a George movie. Miller movie. Only in this movie. Uh, it's out in theaters for now. Probably not yeah. for too much longer. Well, also, I want to throw to something uh, not on any website I work for. There's a piece uh, by Joshua Rivera on Polygon.com called Every George Miller Movie is a Mad Max Movie, which should have been called its subtitle, From Happy Feet to 3,000 Years of Longing, They All Ask One Key Question and Dream of an Answer, because that's a pretty good piece. Guys, I lost Katie's bottle, so I'm going to close it up here. That's going to be uh, this week's Fighting in the War Room. Next week, we're going to take off for Labor Day slash seeing things. Uh, then we'll be back with a vengeance the week after that. Until then, tell the people who you are. Yeah, somebody dredge the, the ocean and get Katie back. Um, but in the meantime, I'm Matt Patches. I am deputy editor over at Polygon. Back to work. Uh, I'm on Twitter. At hey. Mr. Patches, 
And you can find our old episodes. I wonder if we reviewed Fury Road. We probably did in 2015 on an episode of this show. And you can probably go listen to that on fightingintheworm.com. And if we didn't, ooh, gross overtime. I'm sure we did. I'm sure we did. I'm David Relic. Uh, I'm sure very little in this world beyond the fact that we talked about Fury Road when it came out in 2015 uh, in some capacity or another. I'm the film critic for IndieWire. You can find me uh, in Telluride. Not, I don't know. You'll find me. You can find my writing from Telluride in Toronto. Over the next few weeks, where I'll be reviewing approximately a zillion movies. Uh, hopefully some of them are going to bring me joy. Uh, Matt Patch has just put in the Zoom chat uh, a link to our review episode of fighting in the war room um anyway go on itunes please do we haven't no one's done this in a while at least not in america go on itunes fighting in the war room leave us a review we'll read it live on the show when we return in two weeks and i'm dave gonzalez here's all the other things you need to know you could email us your international review or other hanging chads at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com and if you understood that reference you're old uh, you can listen to me on Trial by Content talking about that hot D, House of the Dragon, over on the Ringer Network. You can follow Katie on Twitter at Katie Rich. You could also listen to listen to her on the Little Gold Men podcast and occasionally on the Still Watching House of the Dragon podcast. Those are all over at Vanity Fair. Or you could follow all of us on Twitter. I, it should be and, it's not or. And you can follow all of us on Twitter at FITWR, where you can tweet your praise for 3,000 years of longing or answer this week's lightning round question, which was, in honor of Spider-Man No Way Home, the more fun stuff version, the movie I hate is going to outgross 3,000 years of longing this weekend. What movie needs a re-release with 11 more minutes of fun stuff? That's it. That's the podcast. Go away. I'm done.